0: Sometimes um, this practice and maybe particularly in an intensified version like this kind of thing for a week or so, sometimes it can be a bit of a rough ride for ego. Like we said last night, ego Likes to be comfortable. Ego likes to be right, certain, and ego likes to be secure in its own existence. And uh, exposing ego is one way of describing practice. Exposing ego to the light of awareness tends to Make ego uncomfortable, reveal ego's incapacity to be right, however hard it tries to make everything known and familiar and neat and clear, the mysteriousness of life keeps on breaking through that and reveals a certain fundamental insecurity about ego that keeps making its inferred self-existence look rather questionable. So, like I say, it can be a rough ride for ego. Ego, if it had any sense, wouldn't come here. Least the only thing ego can get out of coming here is to tr- to imagine, and of course, we do this in some ways imagine that the deepening of the practice will be something for me. And this is one of my very favorite lines by the Buddha. And this would have got a lot of retweets back in the day. <laughs> Lisa doesn't even know what a tweet is. Ça aurait été beaucoup retweeté à l'époque. It's an internet thing. <laughs> he says... Yes, your Twitter. He says, "From complete and unexcelled enlightenment, I gained absolutely nothing." That's what ego gets. Can you say that again? From complete and unexcelled enlightenment, I gained absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yes, j'ai gagné absolument rien. Hmm. So, if and uh, we're practicing with some gaining idea, right, what am I getting out of this? What? And the not only what am I gaining but then the tendency to keep measuring and interfering how, how um, is that gaining getting on that's what ego wants to do I want to know the results we spoke about that a little yesterday Like how far along am I how far have I got to go etc then maybe and it's kind of inevitable to, at least to the extent that ego is running the Martin show Although you know whoever your show is, to that extent that you know that's the way ego operates. But it's it's important maybe in seeing that and being reminded by that rather powerful line of the Buddha's that maybe ego's attempt to gain something from practice can only be frustrated. And therefore, our attempts to measure our practice can only lead us in an unhelpful direction. So, even though Ego may have come here with some gaining idea, What we're really showing up for isn't to be comfortable, to be right, and to be secure. Actually, we're showing up here to, for... Well, one way we might describe it is to to know the freedom of being able to be uncomfortable and free. To know the freedom of being able to not have to be right. To actually, the freedom of being able to not know. The freedom of being able to abide in ambiguity. Not really knowing what this is. Not really knowing what this is. It certainly seems, in some way, the more our practice deepens and opens, the less certain we are about anything. Like, even something as simple as body, which we've been contemplating in different ways all week. And I sometimes, even though I find myself sort of teaching about body, sometimes sensing a certain frustration because when I ask myself, what is body? I don't know. How do we define something that has, like we've been saying, has neither edge nor (coughs) centre. So, our practice doesn't yield to ego's attempts to make it comfortable, right or secure. And yet, the more we're able to dare to let ourselves be uncomfortable, not uncertain and insecure. Strangely enough, counterintuitively, maybe, the freer we know our being. It's not the direction that we're likely to look in. Right? That's why we need teachings to point it out. We're unlikely to look for towards un- discomfort, uncertainty, and insecurity. But these practices and these teachings, like one of the ways the Buddha describes this whole practice is as going against the stream. Another way he describes it is as a revolution. Evolution means a complete turning around. Maybe we might say a complete turning upside down. Of our usual assumptions. Of our usual um, habits. In other words, a turning around of the, the direction that ego wants to go. Not just to frustrate ego. No, we take care of ego. Not just to make things difficult for ego but because somehow, despite all the self-centred attempts, there's nothing I can actually gain from this practice. And it may be that as we sit here and explore, that we realize actually maybe we're not really interested in gaining. We've been gaining all our lives. Gaining stuff. Gaining experiences, gaining, uh, gaining, getting, having, doing, becoming, etc. We arrive here rather full of our gains. Oh, maybe rather we want to lose to some things, to undo, to put down to let go, to release, to unburden ourselves, and as we've been exploring, that revolution, that putting down, that letting go, that daring to abide in a way that even for some moments, is willing to explore a life that's not orientated towards comfort and certainty and security. And as we've been exploring and as I've been pointing towards and as you've been experiencing this week, that unburdening that we experience as an opening A softening, a a kind of a filling out into life. And inevitably in that process, a bumping up against the places where the habits of ego, the attempt to regain comfort, regain security, regain certainty, keep popping up. I think it's a helpful image to think of this practice as a revolution. And some of us are quite attracted to revolutions. Some of us have been rebelling since early on. And we wanted a revolution against our parents, or against our education, or both. and. Some of us may it may feel like you know we hear revolution. You can see for yourself what what's the response when you hear revolution. Non, pour des Français. Mm. Mm. La, yeah. mm. Sophie. Mm. Huh? Mm. Well, give me a little time. We <laughs> so for some, we might hear revolution as a kind of. Um, as a as a call we want to respond to. I remember uh, being in the Sinai Desert when I was 18, and I'd been uh, travelling around Egypt and Jordan for a few months with this kind of restless, searching spirit. And I'd left school and I uh, was expected to go to university, but I looked through these university <laughs> brochures and I couldn't see anything I was interested in. And I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew it wasn't that. So I got a one-way ticket to Cairo and I and took no luggage at all, nothing. And I said to my parents, please, take me to the airport. Now that I'm a parent and my son is 17, I feel for my parents. At the time, I couldn't understand why my mother was fussing so much. (laughs) At least take some luggage. Anything I need for life in Egypt, I'll find in Egypt. So... And after a few months of the... And all I knew was, I don't know what I want, but I want something that I can't see, I can't find around me. And after a a couple of months, I was in the Sinai. And I I kept bumping into people who'd been to India, here and there along the way. And then I met this guy in the Sinai, who was a complete stoner. (laughs) He was making money, cutting people's hair on the beach in the Sinai. And he said, man... If you go to India, it'll turn your life upside down. (laughs) And I thought, yes, (laughs) revolution. Because, alors, bouleverser, ça va te bouleverser la vie. Yeah, so some of us hear revolution. I heard that's what I heard that call to revolution, and that was it. I was off to India, off to see what life looked like from uh, as, as different a perspective as I could possibly go to. I wanted to get as far away from the, the familiar. I wanted to be as far away from the comfortable and from the, uh, the narrow, the, cer- the seemingly certain, the seemingly secure, kind of middle class, uh, middle England, uh, mediocre life that I felt I had grown up in. And others of us hear revolution and... Oh. Sounds like a threat. Mm, Something unstable, something unknown, something dangerous maybe. So, here we are. A practice of revolution. Was it what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to spend the evening telling you about my Indian adventures, but uh, (laughs) another time. Some of you have probably heard already. And at the same time, I'm sorry, reflect on the Buddha as a revolutionary, and We're kind of used to the Buddha's teachings as revolutionary. We're used to this practice in a certain way as revolutionary. But what's often emphasized, particularly in an environment like this, because this is a meditation retreat, right? So, a lot of what we're doing here is meditation. So, the revolution we're focusing on is the possibility of turning around, See, the translation gets there ahead of me. (laughs) That's when we know we're in tune. Turning around our assumptions, turning around our beliefs, turning around our habits, so as to see anew, see clearly, see deeply. There's something instructive, I think, in the Buddha's teachings in that he was also a social revolutionary. And there was no, I say also, as if they're two separate things. But they they weren't two separate things. He was interested in going against the stream of greed, hatred and delusion, in the language of the tradition. And our language, this week I've been calling it, our demands and defences and distractions. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh. And we see that playing out here in this heart and mind and body. And we see that playing out in this world. We spent some time last week talking about the, the, kind of the, the worldly expressions, the globalised expressions of greed, hatred and delusion. Two and a half thousand years have passed since the Buddha was talking about greed, hatred and delusion. Not much has changed. Other than the world has become much more connected and globalised and therefore those forces have become more connected and globalised. One sees the global force of greed in the rapacious activity of mega-corporations and the driving of consumer society and the, the... constant encouragement through advertising and marketing, uh, etc, etc, to get, have, become, consume. Sometimes at the expense of of basic sanity, it seems. Certainly at the expense of ecological stability. And at the expense of economic... uh,
1: uh, Equilibrium,
0: thank you. So, we're asked in this practice, not just, okay, this is a meditation retreat, so we're practicing meditation, but we're asked in this practice, not just to be concerned with comfort and certainty and security, demand, defences and and distractions. Sorry, slow down. So we're asked not to be concerned by those things, (laughs) only here but in the way they play out in the world around us the world that we live in the world that we participate in the world that we are responsible for not we, us, 60 I
1: don't want to lay that on you
0: but the world that we collectively are responsible for. This is a practice of appropriate response. How are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? It's interesting to see how the Buddha responded in terms of that social revolution. Partly He was extremely outspoken, extremely outspoken against the power structures of his day. A lot of that was religious power structure, the kind of Brahminical uh, cut and Brahminically controlled society within a kind of rigid, feudal hierarchy of ancient India. The same basic hierarchy that still exists now. Extremely outspoken against the caste system and often extremely outspoken against the the powerful figures that he interacted with. And it was a kind of delicate balance for him because often these powerful figures were people who would feed him and his retinue of uh, nuns and monks for the rain season. People who would provide them with robes and a place to stay in the, uh, in the rains. So, it's a delicate balance. We exist in a world of a lot of powerful, hierarch- of strong, you know, hierarchical power structures. And we have opportunities in different ways to speak out against the injustice to go against the stream of greed, hatred and delusion. And we might ask ourselves what, what kind of responsibility we feel with regard to that. In what ways we feel moved to speak and act and respond. I've, for the last few months, been involved with a kind of collective of Buddhist teachers uh, discussing and planning some uh, actions around uh, calls for climate change, and particularly focusing in the, on the U.N. Climate Summit in New York in September. And there's going to be a will probably be the largest demonstration in the history of the world. That's the idea, right? the Climate March in New York City on September 23rd. If you happen to be there, at least one of you will <laughs> exactly. Here. And so we've been discussing about this and uh, I, re- I just got an email today from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Who some of you will be familiar with his name. He's the preeminent scholar monk of Pali these days. He's translated over the whole course of his life, basically. He's about must be nearly 80 now. And for so the last 40 years he spent translating all the main texts of the Buddha's teachings from Pali. Into English, many of which hadn't been translated for 50 or 100 years and were previously translated by scholars rather than practitioners. So it's been an extraordinary service to those of us who love the Buddha's teachings. So here's this old monk, and he's been a scholar all his life, but in the last 10 years, he's started to say this world needs action. And he's, for an old guy, an old scholarly guy, he's started and participated in all kinds of very impressive social movements to do with economic justice and women's empowerment, which is a kind of interesting realm for an old monk. (laughs) 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 And as part of this discussion about the calls for climate action at the UN summit, Another Buddhist teacher, who has got a kind of uh, good connection at the White House, um, offered Bhikkhu Bodhi the chance to speak at the White House, where there's an invita- uh, some different faith leaders and uh, some Buddhist leaders invited to speak about a faith-based perspective on climate change. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said, The time for conferences is over. The time for action is here. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive <laughs> for an old scholarly monk. Right? So it kind of one, re- and I read that today and I felt uh, some goosebumps. No? No. The Buddha was also rather radical in. The inclusion, and it doesn't, it's kind of difficult across history, it doesn't sound particularly radical, but it was very radical in the inclusion of women in the monastic order. And I say it looks strange across history because the women were never given quite the same status as men in a monastic order, which has been a source of difficulty since, and increasingly is a source of both difficulty and ridiculousness now, because there's a, absolutely no justifiable reason for the for not having equal status now right but two and a half thousand years ago women didn't really have any rights at all in that society Were well, kind of uh you know society was run in a very masculine way and women were almost like traded for marriage etc like property so the buddha's accordance of to opening the sangha to women's participation, and at first he res- he resisted because he said, "Look, this is like unprecedented, this is going to cause a lot of trouble and there was some of the other monks, one of the other monks particularly, and said, "Would you say, O oh Lord, <laughs> that women have equal capacity to be liberated as men do? and Buddha says, yeah, sure, of course." So, how can you justify not letting them join the Sangha? Um, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think I know, but I don't want to get it wrong. So, you can look it up. So, how can you justify not letting them in the Sangha? Oh yes, said the Buddha, you're right. So, that was, and uh, of course that was, uh, that meant that women could be free to leave their homes, leave their husbands, Etc. Uh, Etc. And uh, whereas otherwise in that society there would have been absolutely no uh, no safety net, no way to be supported outside of the rather rigid culture, there was a way through the sangha to be supported. So. These are just uh, some examples of the Buddha kind of uh, taking a strong and sometimes very unpopular stand, sometimes a stand that attracted a lot of criticism and opprobrium or something <laughs> from people. And also, in, throughout the texts, when the Buddha's asked about pretty much everything under the sun, There's nowhere, anywhere in the texts, where the Buddha, and I think it's probably the only, actually I'm not sure if that's true, but there's nowhere in the text where the Buddha has anything to say at all against homosexuality. Which, in terms of old cultures, is uh, pretty unusual. I was going to say I think it may be the only one, but certainly when one looks at some of the Judeo, Christio Islamo, religious doctrine about all that, it then makes the Buddha look extremely progressive. So, all of that to say, where's our social conscience? A lot of you are are involved in Dhamma practice to a significant extent. A lot of you have some years of practice, so I want to ask you, where's our social conscience? Where is the social inclusivity in our sanghas? Because it seems to me that there's some diversity, right? There's quite a good diversity of age here, I would say. And that's even actually quite unusual in the Dharma scene. When I teach in the States, particularly, I'm like the youngest person there. There's only old people in America, was the translation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it also seems to me that this kind of the environment can be a little insular a little uh, familiar a little safe a little self-regarding the, the Dharma scene tends to be quite middle class, quite white, quite hetero. Quite what? Hetero. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was in Paris teaching uh, earlier this year, and I'd encouraged them in Paris to invite an American teacher called Noah Levine, some of you know of, And Noah was coming here to teach. And I said, oh, invite him to teach there while he's in Paris. So they looked uh, up and they saw this guy. He's got a lot of tattoos. And they were scared of that, the the tattoos. So when I got to Paris, I said, oh, what happened with Noah? They said, oh, (laughs) we see. He had a lot of tattoos. I said, yeah, what's different? So we didn't invite him. Oh, dear. So, I said there was about 120 people there from that group, and the people of the SEA, the the board, the trustees, whatever, I said, really, you have a problem. Your board is too old, too white, and too hetero. (laughs) (laughs) And I know, and since then, some of the old white heteros have resigned. Which, which I commend them for in terms of making space for a little bit of a wider view, a more inclusive view. So, given the social, l- socially radical nature of the Buddha's uh, w- teaching, it makes me, reflect, re- makes me reflect on where my attention goes in teaching, makes me reflect on where I teach, how I teach, who I teach, makes me reflect on who comes to teachings and also makes me reflect on who doesn't come to teachings. So I look around and I see some age diversity. And I also see that we're pretty white. And I don't know your sexual orientation. (laughs) But I get a feeling that generally the Dharma scene is pretty hetero. Not everywhere. Okay, okay. Je pense que les homos, je suis, se sentent bien dans le bouddhisme. Ceux qui ont une recherche spirituelle se sentent mal dans les religions traditionnelles. Ils vont dans le Dans le centre, moi, je je suis. Il y a beaucoup de gens qui sont des homosexuels parmi les responsables aussi. Great. Great. I'm really glad to hear it. So Claire says she doesn't agree and she has her senses that actually that gay people, of which she is one, find that, uh, and her senses that in general, that in contrast to other religious practices where they can feel some uh, rejection or intolerance, that actually within the Dharma scene, it doesn't feel like that. So, yeah. So, great. I'm. In Paris, right. right. Yeah. So, uh, our interest is to go against the stream. Our interest is to address suffering. And suffering is suffering, whether it's middle-class suffering, white suffering, whether it's suffering of this group or that group. right? Suffering, suffering, we address it where we find it. But is there a way that our attitude, whether in the Sangha or whether outside, in the world or out the world, the tendency we can easily have is to gravitate to those we sort of recognize. We recognize through affiliation, we recognize through shared uh, value system, we recognize through similar class background, we recognize through uh, shared whatever it is. (coughs) And to see for ourselves, is there a way that we tend to ignore, sideline others in some way? A way that we tend to put others out of our hearts maybe in ways that we don't even notice so what will your social revolution look like I mean I don't know Ryan. I certainly don't have a blueprint I certainly have no idea of what it should look like other than we're interested in suffering and in going against the stream. There's a sort of social revolution happening around mindfulness. Mindfulness is becoming uh, very mainstream uh, in its secular form. And there's both some excitement about that, I would say, in the Buddhist world. Like, see, we told you so. We told you this was good stuff. And there's some concern uh, in the Buddhist world, like, hold on, this is our gig. Like, you know, we're, we're losing control of uh, here. But it seems to me that like in, the, in, Asia, in the Asian traditions where the Dharma practice was, the, the entryway into deep Dharma practice was going to the temple bowing lighting incense chanting etc and that was good that's very good and for some it kind of stimulated an interest to go deeper but not for all for some going to the temple is sort of enough and in the in the west the going to the temple is never going to be the entry way into dharma practice, but the great spread of mindfulness practice to me seems like it's the entryway. Not to suggest that secular mindfulness practice is necessarily shallow in some way. I think there are some extremely potent and important and skillful presentations of it. But even when it's it's, uh, spread in a way that brings some concern from so-called serious dharma practitioners, I think it's helpful to see that as an entryway. I think it it may be part of a social revolution. I just got an e- an email from a friend today, who has just gotten the first uh, accredited mindfulness course in a public school curriculum, in in the U.S. Uh, and she's she's relating it to a hundred years ago, pretty much exactly. Physical education was the first class of physical education was accredited. Until that time, there was no recognition that it could be of any value within education to have kids do some exercise. And now, of course, it's, it's like a fundamental, integral part of education. And, you know, some of you are involved in various uh, mindfulness projects in education in the UK and uh, maybe in the States, and in, and in France as well. Right? And just so, so, maybe social revolution isn't too strong a word for that kind of thing. So there's one example. Another example would be um, a guy who came on retreat with me a few years ago. And at the end of the retreat, he said, Wow, this has been fantastic. I feel like I've spent my life searching for this, which I could very much recognize. That's exactly how I felt when I first discovered Dharma practice. So I said, Oh, good. you know." Six months later, he came back on retreat, and he turned up in a van, and he said, oh, "I am back on retreat. I've sold my flat, given up my job, left my girlfriend, given away all my possessions, and I'm oh, I've come on retreat. I don't know what's next, and it's all because of you." <laughs> I said. I'm not sure if I want that karma, right? <laughs> and then after the retreat, he uh, that was it. He went on from following his nose from place to place and a certain sense that something wanted a, a, rad- a revolution. Went in. And then uh, another few months later, I was teaching in India and he arrived w- in, with his arm in a sling and his head bandaged and, uh, <laughs> for the retreat. And uh, the van that he had had, he'd driven most of the way to India and then uh, crashed in Pakistan into a bus and the van had rolled down a hill and limped to the retreat, but still committed. (laughs) Another few months went by. uh, And then I got a letter from him and he was in China where he'd continued his travels and his investigation of life. And he got to China and was struck by just the the, uh, painful condition of orphaned children in uh, the town, city in China that he'd wound up in. And he'd started an orphanage. And now, 10 years later, he has about, I don't know how many orphanages set up in China, and it's set up a rather huge organization. And he recently said to me, he's just starting to feel that same feeling of way back. Everything, the orphanages are set up, everything's working well. Maybe it's time to give up the flat, leave the partner, hit the road again. Secular mindfulness, somebody's following their heart around the world and uh, creating a uh, beautiful project. Just two examples we could draw of many. But the invitation's really just for us to see how do we connect this practice, this beautiful practice, this great sincerity, this willingness to be here all week, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to be uncertain, willing to be insecure in the service of a revolution in the heart, willing to go against the stream of ego's tendencies. That's that's what, every, that's what we've been doing, right? That's what you've been doing. It's a noble thing. It's a beautiful thing. And how does that connect to how we are in the world? Well, how am I called, whoever the I is? How are you called to respond to the world that you live in, the world you participate in, the world you're responsible for? And, like I say, when I said it's not us 60, when I say that you're responsible for that can sound like a heavy thing, but if it's not us, us in the broadest sense, who the hell is it that's responsible? Who's gonna make a difference if not us? (coughs) Vive la Révolution. In the heart, in the world, in whatever circles we move in, how can I make a difference? It's the same question. How can I, What's happening here, we've been asking this week. Same question, what's happening here, in whatever context we find ourselves? How am I meeting it? What's happening here, what's happening here? here, so-called in here, so-called out here, but it's all happening here. What will make a difference? So, I offer these reflections in the wish that the goodness of our practice spread out, that the goodness of our practice Make no distinction between what's happening here and what's happening here. That the goodness of our practice be that that which dissolves the seeming gap between self and world. That the goodness of our practice is one that can make an appropriate response. And the goodness of our practice give us the clarity and the strength and the goodness of heart to keep feeling for that appropriate response. To keep orientating to the compass of the heart. Okay, thank you.